That's what competition comes down to. Getting them to say yes to us and our allies and no to our adversaries. And right now I think we're struggling in that, in that realm. Culturally, we, I think we do have an issue. We think of influence and information operations as a supporting effort to our actual tactical and operational efforts. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and this episode features a conversation MWI's Major Jake Moraldi had with Mark Mitchell. From June to November 2019, he served as the Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. Prior to that, he served for nearly three decades in the Army. As a Special Forces officer, he was among the first U.S. forces in Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks, and later served in positions ranging from Command of 5th Special Forces Group to Director for Counterterrorism on the National Security Council. In the conversation, he talks about how the role of Special Operations Forces has evolved over nearly 20 years of war, and how he envisions SOF's role in the future. He also describes some of the biggest challenges he sees in today's global operating environment and the military's role, not just in conflict, but in competition. I hope you enjoyed the episode, but first, just a couple quick notes. For those listeners who have subscribed to the MWI podcast, thank you so much. And for anyone who hasn't, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please take just a moment and give the podcast a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Mark Mitchell. Today on the podcast, we have Mark Mitchell, who is the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations Low-Intensity Conflict. Sir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming to talk to us on a a snowy West Point day. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So we talked quite a bit before we started recording, and I think it fleshed out some of the nuance that I think is worth talking with you. And I I think your position as the ASD Solik provides a a good context to, to have this discussion. Sure. And it's the difference between competition and conflict. Those words crop up a lot in the Department of Defense's vocabulary and broader than that in the sort of larger security structure. And I'm, I'm curious what your vision of that is and sort of how you foresee the Department of Defense doing each of those things. And that's obviously big and we can break that down as we sure, go. But, sure. but the difference between competition and conflict and, and where we see that out in the world today. Right. Well, so let me just start with the the fundamentals of the national defense strategy that Secretary Mattis uh, uh, issued, I think got it right in terms of refocusing the department on this idea of, of great power competition and great power conflict. And I, I think the fundamental idea of the NDS gets lost in the discussion. And it was really, uh, the core idea was to win the competition short of armed conflict so that we didn't end up having to fight that, that, that conflict. Um, now, as a Department of Defense, we, we have an obligation to the American people to always be prepared to, uh, to defend the nation and to win those wars. But we also have to think about 
the strategy that our adversaries are pursuing um, that seeks to avoid our greatest strength, which is our, our uh, ability to wage war, not only uh, against uh, terrorists and uh, insurgents, but against, uh, against other state parties. And our record ha has been, uh, by and large, particularly in tactical and operational level engagements, I think it's been pretty damn good. So they, they seek to avoid those strengths by adopting strategies uh, to compete short of armed conflict. And I, I make a distinction between competition and, um, and deterrence. You know, deterrence is important to prevent conflict, but it doesn't get us there. And that deterrence is about our adversaries' perceptions of our capabilities, will, and intent. That competition is uh, a third party's assessment of our capabilities, will, and intent vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Chinese, the Russians, North Koreans, uh, the Iranians. And they are related concepts, but they're not the same. And I think it, the department needs to take a more aggressive approach to the competition uh, space. And it's just not, it's not sufficient to say, well, we only have to worry about winning the war. We have to uh, contribute to that competition and figuring out how to get country, other countries to say yes to America and no to the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians or North Koreans. And fundamentally, that's what, that's what competition comes down to, getting them to say yes to us and our allies and no to, uh, to our adversaries. And right now, I think we're struggling in that, in that realm. Uh, if you look at 5G, trying to get a lot of our partners to say no to Huawei uh, and ZTE. Um, and gee, we can't even get the NBA to say no to the uh, Chinese here in the United States. So we, this competition uh, is critically important in the long run. So I think there, what you said was interesting in the sense that it seems as though, and, and you didn't say this in so many words, so let me know if, you're, if I'm putting words in your mouth. It seems as though we as a Department of Defense are sort of defaulting to this idea of conflict as opposed to competition. What do you think is sort of the, the genesis of that, if that's your assessment? No, I, I, I would agree with that. I do think that the Department of Defense is, is organized uh, to fight and win the nation's wars. And that's what we do. That's, that's, our, that's our comfort zone. Um, and again, as I said earlier, we've done a very good job of that. We, we have a, uh, an edge over our adversaries and our ability to execute combined arms operations in a, you know, in a multi-domain environment. I know there's a lot of talk about improving our ability to do that, but we already have that, we already have a substantial edge uh, over our adversaries by virtue of our our long military experience, but even just over the last 18 years. And that's our comfort zone. Um, and that's where the majority of our authorities reside. But the competition space, especially outside theaters of armed conflict, uh, there are some in the department who say it's not our responsibility. We just need to focus on the military aspect of of that competition and being prepared to fight and win those wars. Um, I, don't, 
I don't think that's correct. I think we have to, as the largest department in the in the federal government of the United States, um, and as one that's organized to think strategically, to plan and action oriented, even where we're not the lead federal agency, we need to help troop lead and integrate uh, other aspects of our national power to achieve these uh, strategic ends that we seek in that in that competition. And again, it's it's complex, it's difficult, and it's um, it's very it's amorphous, and you don't see the immediate results. Mm-hmm. And so, I think there is a, a tendency to focus on something that's easily uh, that's more concrete and having a capability to to win an armed conflict, overmatching our adversary's capabilities. So that brings me to the question of what sort of capability, either organizationally in terms of structure or culture, do we lack within the Department of Defense that sort of limits our ability to operate in that competition space as opposed to a a conflict space? So culturally, um, we, we, I think we do have an issue. We think of, of influence and information operations as a supporting effort to our, uh, our actual tactical uh, and operational efforts in that we, we do an operation and then we think about the messaging that we're going to you know, use to explain it, to exploit it, et cetera, et cetera. We need a cultural shift in this competition space to think about the the effect that we want to generate with uh, influence and information. Again, we don't have the ability to use lethal force outside these uh, theaters of armed conflict. So we need to think first and foremost about the influence that we want to achieve and then use our military capabilities, our tactical capabilities, in support of that. And so we have to flip the, the paradigm on its head. And we, you know, I've seen some uh, great examples of that in my uh, service in uniform uh, at, the, at the tactical level. And it's amazing what you can do if you understand your adversary and you seek, first of all, to influence them psychologically, mm-hmm. emotionally, uh, in, in that cognitive domain, and then use your tactical military operations and capabilities to reinforce those perceptions uh, rather than the other way around. And do we structurally have the resources that we need as a department to, to do that? Is no. It, we, we lack, do we have that capability? Do we, or is I, that something that we need to? I don't to? think we do. I think um, the, the department needs an organization at the strategic level that has direct access to the secretary that can um, plan and execute uh, influence operations across the department. And when I have raised this before, they say, well, we have public affairs. No, public affairs is just one of our information, what we call IRCs, information-related capabilities. We have highly classified um, capabilities. We have uh, our public affairs. We have our, our military information support operations. 
And it's not just what we say, but what we do. And all of those should be in service of influencing our, uh, our adversaries, our partners, our allies, and uncommitted third parties in this competition space. And it, it's got to be, it really is a daily operational effort. And I think uh, it, it cannot be buried in the joint staff because it is not simply about the joint force. It's about the entire department, whether you're uh, a civilian working at Army Material Command, uh, whether you're a, a uniformed uh, officer serving in the Department of the Navy, um, or you're uh, out in a, one of the combatant commands, whether a geographic or functional. It's the full breadth of the department, and it needs to have an integrated approach uh, that encompasses all of the information-related capabilities. And I think there needs to be an organization at the secretary's level that, again, has access to him um, without having to go through weeks of staffing because, you know, sometimes that's what it takes. And if you're, if you're operating on a, a multi-week um, timeline mm -hmm. in, in the information age, you're, you're just not going to be effective. You have to be able to be uh, very agile. And the only way we're going to achieve that agility um, is by having an organization at the secretary's level that can speak with his authority, direct the department in all of these strategic uh, communications and influence efforts. So I think a good example of this we were talking about before we started recording is what's currently going on in, in Hong Kong and sure. how we could or should be doing sort of contingency planning or branch planning for some potential next steps right. in or escalation by the Chinese government right. <clears throat> as it pertains to protesters. And so I'm curious how, how you sort of would envision that right. happening if we had the capabilities to, to compete in the so, way you're talking about. So this is one of those things where, you know, the we've been watching the protests over the last several months. We've seen more increasingly, um, increasingly harsh measures used against the protesters. And we've seen the Chinese move military forces into Hong Kong and stage just outside. So there's a, this potential that the Chinese could, for whatever reason, decide to use overwhelming military force against the protesters, which would be a... Um, a strategic communications gift to the United States and our allies if we're prepared to exploit it. And that, to me, that means we should have a, uh, a well-conceived contingency plan of what our messages would be and how we would deliver them in the case the Chinese escalated to a uh, a use of force uh, a la Tiananmen Square. And we would have it planned out, not just for what we'd say to the Chinese, but we'd say to our, our allies, our partners, um, other adversaries, and third third parties who may not, you know, who may be on the fence. And we should know, and every commander, every civilian who's in a position to deliver a message should know exactly what those messages are so that within minutes of the Chinese doing something like that, we were beginning to message. Not, we're starting, not, 
going, oh my God, what are we going to say about it? And this is, uh, again, flipping the paradigm on its head and thinking about influence and strategic communications as the primary effort and then doing, uh, having our other, you know, typical military operations um, in, in support of that. And ideally, a, a strategic communications campaign like that would be led from the White House, it would be across the U.S. government. But as I said earlier, I feel like a lot of the other departments and agencies are not action-oriented. They're not, um, this is not their wheelhouse, and this is where we as a Department of Defense can take a, we may not have all the authorities we, we want, uh, but we can take a leading role in uh, troop leading other departments and agencies to uh, this level of preparedness. And again, I would just hate to see us miss a, a strategic messaging uh, opportunity like that. And the fact that we, we don't, have not uh, published you know, even at the classified level, I, I don't recall seeing anything, uh, a, a, capa a, a plan like that, I think, is an indicator that we're not fully prepared to, to engage in that space. Continuing with the, the Hong Kong example, how would you see, hypothetically, if we were able to do that, respond with a, a coherent, well-put-together messaging strategy if there was a sort of Tiananmen Square type mm -hmm. incident in, in Hong Kong? <clears throat> How in that? How in your mind is that tied to the national defense strategy? What is that? What does that ultimately garner sure. us in terms of our own national interests and, and national security? Right. It. It. So going back to the theme of competition, short of armed conflict, and that competition for influence, it it lifts the mask off of the Chinese and shows them for what they really truly are: uh, communist authoritarians who are willing to kill or imprison their own citizens um, to achieve that the control that they desire. And if they treat their own citizens that way, what makes you, country X, think that they're going to treat you better than they treat their own citizens? Um, and again, it, it, it lifts the veil and allows us to show the rest of the world the difference between what the Chinese say publicly and what they, what they really do and what their, their true intentions are. And I think to the degree that helps us win over um, uh, allies and partners or prevents other countries from throwing their lot in with the Chinese, mm -hmm. Um, it helps our national defense strategy. It does, and it ties to a larger strategic narrative and a, a strategic vision. Right, and, and, and I don't think we've done enough to really contrast the, uh, our values and the Chinese values. And the Chinese are very, um, you know, they, as, uh, as Chairman Xi, Xi has said, they're biding their time. Um, and I think, you know, we do a disservice when we call him president and, and you know, implying that there's some sort of democratic um, uh, norm there in China. It's really, he's the chairman of the Communist Party. And we 
they want to downplay that and they want to downplay their um, their goals. But we, again, in this competition, we need to expose them and make sure that the rest of the world uh, understands what they're truly attempting to achieve and that a world dominated by China is not a world that any of us really want to live in. So bringing it down a little bit from sort of a departmental level to a little bit more of a tactical level, sure. what would you say to the, the argument that the sort of MDO concept, the multi-domain operations concept, is, is able to get at what you're talking about in sort of a competition space, that we are building or at least thinking about the capabilities at a combatant command level and below to put, leverage all these different assets to mm -hmm. achieve something. I mean, what's, how, what's your view on, on MDO as it pertains to that competition space? I think, I think again, MDO is, is important. Um, and I, I think to the extent that the department, and in particularly in the Army, is experimenting and thinking about this, um, it, it's valuable. But I, I still am concerned that the, the primary objective of MDO is the use of military force to, um, to impose our, our will on an enemy, as opposed to using all of our uh, assets to influence those third parties. And again, the, the department is organized and responsible for fighting and winning the nation's wars, but we also have to uh, be cognizant of the fact that our enemies, our adversaries, whether it's the Russians, Chinese, the Iranians, North Koreans, don't, they're not going to seek a fight with us. And in fact, they're going to attempt to avoid taking us on in those multi-domain operations. And so we have to look at uh, other ways of applying our military capabilities again, without the ability to use lethal force. And that mean, to me, that means making information and influence the primary uh, objective rather than imposing our will by force. So to finish up, sure. I think we will, I think it's worth jumping into that conflict space just a little bit um, and sort of talking as, as the former ASD Solik as to what the special operations community and, and the people that you were responsible for, how they fit into that conflict picture if conflict is to arrive. Um, we spoke recently with uh, the commander down at SWIC, um, and then we actually have a cadet group doing a project that sort of touches on how special operations forces should be used in, in great power conflict. Um, so I'm curious sort of what your vision was for how those forces might be used in sure. the event of actual conflict as opposed to competition. Sure. Well, what I, what I've, the message I've given to the force was that special operations has been the, effectively the supported effort for the last 18 years in, um, in uh, counterterrorism and in many counterinsurgency operations. And we've become accustomed to being in that, that leading role. Moving forward, both in great power competition and then in great power conflict, uh, SOF will, I think, will play much more of a uh, traditional supporting role to our general purpose forces. And the, that role 
uh, first of all, in, in peacetime, in that competition, is you know strengthening allies and partners, mm-hmm. building those relationships uh, with them, and developing um, access and placement and networks to be able to hold our adversaries strategic capabilities at risk to create dilemmas for them um, when at the start of a conflict to ensure that we, the United States, start that conflict from a position of strategic advantage. Mm -hmm. And um, and that, you know, recognizing that our adversaries are, um, this is a a global effort. you know, the Chinese and the Russians are building global satellite networks, global networks of influence, um, and a competition, a conflict with them would likely not be confined just to, you know, uh, Asia or, or Europe, uh, but likely have aspects elsewhere. And again, the special operations uh, force can play a, an important role and again, doing, uh, creating dilemmas for them by holding their capabilities at risk um, or uh, helping us to achieve strategic surprise and making them uh, divert forces that, again, allows our conventional forces to achieve their um, strategic uh, overmatch, mm-hmm. um, at either at the beginning of conflict or as a conflict progresses. I think uh, also that, and, and not simply in the commando raid type operation, mm-hmm. but in terms of uh, things like creating unrest in their populations and creating uh, dilemmas for them at home, uh, whether it's you know, helping the Uyghurs to, to create an uprising. Um, those, are, those are all things that we have, the special operations community has the capabilities to do mm-hmm. and and needs to do uh, in concert with our other instruments of national power, again, to ensure that we start, if a conflict does in fact begin, we start from a position of a strategic advantage. Okay. So because we are here at West Point and, and you are unique in asking this question, because I always ask this one, but you have a cadet here, is if I'm a cadet or a junior officer, how should this discussion of competition versus conflict influence the way that I think about the job that I'm about to go do or, or how I prepare for that job? Mm-hmm. I, think, uh, I think for our, our next generation of leaders, it's incumbent on them to uh, understand the, the Chinese, uh, in particular, I'm most concerned about China, much more so than Russia. Uh, North Korea or Iran, because I think China poses an existential threat to our way of life. Um, if they succeed in, you know, replacing the dollar with the yuan um, and achieving uh, all of their goals, it, the world will be a much different place than what we've, uh, than one we've become accustomed to. And I think it's incumbent on the cadets uh, here as they're preparing to assume those leadership roles to understand the the strategy that our adversaries are uh, pursuing and to appreciate that and then look both for historical examples um, 
and to think about the future, about the role that we, uh, that the United States Army can play. Um, and with the, even the conventional forces, you know, we say this a lot in the special operations community that a tactical uh, operation can have strategic effects. The same can be said of, uh, of well-conceived conventional force operations and the, the efforts that these uh, young men and women are gonna make as platoon leaders, company commanders, um, you know, uh, battalion level staff officers, and eventually, you know, battalion commanders can have strategic effects, but it, they, they need to understand uh, what our adversaries are trying to do and, and put it in an appropriate historical context mm -hmm. um, so that we can, they can contribute uh, to thwarting the Chinese strategy. And again, you know, we've all grown up in an era where the United States has been the dominant political and military, economic, uh, cultural uh, power globally, but that's not our birthright, and it 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 can change, and there's no guarantee that it's going to continue. And the young men and women who are studying here at West Point um, are going to be, you know, if you look at the timeline for the Chinese and their uh, their rejuvenation and their desire to complete it uh, by by their 100th anniversary in 2049. And that's uh, that's 30 years from today. And that's when, the, you know, there, there are men and women who are sitting in these classes today that are getting ready to graduate. They're gonna be general officers and they're gonna be leading uh, this fight. And I, you can say that with 100% certainty that there are young men and women here today that are gonna be uh, general officers when the Chinese um, hope to achieve their strategic plan. Mm -hmm. And so they, they would serve them well to understand what that plan is, how the United States Army uh, has historically and can in the future uh, prevent that from becoming a reality and, and truly protect our way of life. All right. Seems like a good place to stop. Thank yeah. you, sir, for talking to us. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research that we're releasing every day. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.